the wildest moments of WeWork's rise. What on earth is WeWork anyway? Getting high on marijuana while flying high on private jets. $36,000 teaching kids yoga, meditation, and farming. Now they're broke. What happens when science is unchanged from big institutions and embodies that independent spirit? What can scientists learn from the rise and fall of WeWork? The thoughts expressed in this podcast are my own views. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Welcome back to another episode of the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack. I'm a scientist, YouTuber, and podcaster. We talk about the business of science and how the latest headlines in science, tech, and business teaches us about the jobs of the future. We have seen the latest headlines in a rather schadenfreude kind of way. Shout out to the Big Con podcast. All around the rise, but particularly the fall of WeWork. It is a way for everyone to work remotely. There are move-in ready offices for teams of all sizes, a dedicated desk in a shared office that you go to one of these WeWork offices and you can book out meeting rooms and hot desks and lounges and there's free food and it's all quote-unquote relatively affordable for the individual employee to the small startup. What does it actually cost to have a WeWork membership? If we get an all-access pass for WeWork going into any of these WeWork co-working spaces found all over the world, basic plan costs around 200 Australian dollars a month. I don't know what the conversion rate is but I'm guessing that's around the ballpark of about 150 US dollars a month. Now that is per employee to my understanding. So if you're a small business, this makes sense. If you're a big business with 50 to 100 employees, all of a sudden that cost of simply having an office space doesn't quite work out economically. Still, if I, for example, started my own business and I had three to five employees and I wanted to hire an editor who is halfway across the world, then I would want them to get something like this to have access to a quality internet connection, a stable working environment, at least for the duration of a couple of meetings. It does kind of make sense, but we're not talking about just any business. We're talking about science today. And we're talking about whether scientists and the business of science can align with something like WeWork. But we do, of course, have to acknowledge the schadenfreude elephant in the room in that WeWork has spectacularly failed. Their share prices were astronomical at one point, being valued at $48 billion as a whole company since their attempt at an initial public offering where they had to go through and file all of their expenses and income. The cat was let out of the bag. They have enormous debt a lot of conflicts of interest, skyrocketing expenses, the leases they're paying on these office buildings in really central areas where anyone can come in and pay this fee for a pass. They were having to pay 10, 15 year leases very expensively, whereas the people coming in paying these one-off or access passes weren't covering their costs. In late 2023, when this episode is going live, they had just announced bankruptcy. This co-working startup once promised to revolutionize the way that we work in offices is now gone bust. Now, the reason they went bust isn't just because of a flawed real estate model. It was also due to a number of systemic issues, largely been traced back to kind of irresponsible spending and lots of failed ventures and failed ideas. They were trying to spread themselves too thin with too many crazy ideas, given that their first idea seemed to be working. Adam Newman was one of the founders of WeWork and has a penchant for pot and would routinely make it almost unsafe to fly on private jets given how much marijuana smoke was in the air during the flight. And the marijuana smoke was so thick on one flight that cabin crew needed to put on oxygen masks. On top of that, this casual cruelty with respect to laying off staff, which I do know is endemic in a lot of startups and that kind of culture, certainly firing staff, very common in science as well. So we can relate to this in some level, but what we can't relate to is having a very casual attitude to firing a significant portion of 
stuff and hiring Run DMC to come do a set, run a party, celebrate or commiserate the firing of all of these people and mixing so much alcohol with the workplace is never a good idea. Spreading themselves too thin is also something that WeWork was guilty of you could argue trying to start a school called we grow astronomical tuition fees starting at $36,000 and trying to become this all-encompassing curriculum that taught children yoga meditation and farming and also try to co-living experiment with dorm rooms with lots of amenities for young professionals to have a share house essentially but trying to hack the real estate environment is a very difficult proposition even for the most audacious of startups. So We Live didn't really work out. Both those experiments went kaput and coupled with their very high expenses, their questionable revenue generation, and the global pandemic made the necessity for going into a physical office even more redundant. So that kind of put the nail in the coffin. Their expenses could not be met by the revenue they were generating and now they've declared bankruptcy. But of course, a broken clock is right twice a day. And there is something to this idea where if you could share a space and lower the cost for everyone, then you could potentially be more productive. And science is, in fact, in need of a refresher. There are a lot of systemic issues with how science operates and how the business of science runs. Everything is very expensive. So today, let's think about how this idea of WeWork could be transposed to something like science and innovation and people who work in the business of science. This article is a little bit old now. It is from formerly io9 now gizmodo and this is the only article i could find about what it actually costs to run a university science lab and the reason i'm referencing this article from 2011 is that this is all actually very hush hush no one really likes to disclose exactly how much it costs to run a science lab we know about the publicly named funding sources but every kind of research in any kind of field costs a different amount of money and this money is also tied up in professors leverage you know if they've got different appointments at different universities or if they're very high profile it's all independently negotiated these numbers are a little bit outdated but i just want to get a sense and give you a sense of what are the actual costs of running a science lab and can any of these costs be offset by something like that we work model of shared office spaces a new scientist fresh with a new laboratory at their disposal they may be given a startup package by that university. This sounds pretty generous to me. Can be anywhere from half a million to $1 million, depending on the kind of research they're doing. And it's intending to allow college professors to hit the ground running, buy the equipment they need, hire a few people to get started and be on their way doing their groundbreaking research. This money, it sounds like a lot, is going to run out really soon, especially if it's salaries. In Australia, the average scientist's salary costs, if you include things like uh, on costs and superannuation and insurance, all that kind of stuff, let's say $100,000. So if the startup package is say $500,000, then you can afford to pay one scientist for five years or five scientists for one year. You kind of do need quite a few people on your team being very productive or at the same time. So half a million dollars evaporate and this money does not go very far. Once this money runs out, the university does not go, hey, here's another half a million dollars. Here's another million dollars. This is where it's up to you as the individual faculty member or scientist to pony up, not of your own personal money, hopefully, but of your ability to negotiate 
and apply for grant funding in the United States. It's, I believe, NIH and SF, as well as any charitable organizations. In Australia, it's NHMRC, ARC, as well as a suite of hopefully charitable organizations. A combination of public funding agencies that are funded by tax dollars, as well as some private money, hopefully through charities that you can raise of your own accord. Once you raise that money, you then start dealing with the costs of everyday science. We've already talked about salaries. Scientist salary, 100 grand for one scientist for one year. Again, that's Australia. In other parts of the world, it might not be quite as high or quite as low. Then on top of that, you got to pay for consumables, which can be anywhere from $20,000 or more per year. Some chemicals, a flask of cells to keep that flask of cells alive for one week can cost hundreds of dollars. And you're not just working with one flask of cells at any one point in time. This kind of thing does tend to escalate. And if you want to buy new equipment, a fancy new microscope, a fancy new machine to measure something that you've never measured before. These machines usually are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is a very quick way for your cost to add up. And on top of that, universities do take a cut of the money that you bring in. So if you get a grant, let's say it's for half a million dollars, you don't get a check for half a million dollars. The university takes a portion of that. The rate depends on where you work, but 45, 50, 60% of the money, that's not uncommon. That huge portion goes to university to cover things like rent, keeping the lights on, electricity, water, as well as insurance. In my field of biological sciences, a huge cost is just the insurance in case people get hurt, in case some of the chemicals get leaked, in case some of the biological agents aren't properly regulated, properly stored, all of that goes towards the regulatory side, which is also very, very expensive. This is hardly a scientist crying poor, but this is actually a scientist crying poor. These grants that get announced in the news, half a million dollars for research for this disease, sounds like it should be enough to fix the problem, but often we're just going towards paying a few scientists for a couple of years and paying for some research reagents, some consumables. So these grants, pots of money, they don't last all that long. So can we lower the cost of things like consumables and can we lower the cost of things like rent having to pay for insurance if we go to a WeWork style model. A lot of science buildings are shared by multiple labs where multiple different kinds of research are happening and in theory it works great because you can have different types of scientists working in the same space, a chemist working with a biologist, working next to a physicist, all of whom are collaborating. In reality, people are quite territorial about the space they have. You don't want your equipment being left really dirty. You don't want the lab bench to be covered in some kind of dust that you're not sure what it is is because a different research group was using it a second ago. There is, of course, intellectual property. It's not shared equally amongst all the people who are sharing that space. I'm curious how WeWork handles things like intellectual property. If someone signs a form and leaves it on the printer, all the other people in the shared workspaces now have seen that printout. If they have their policies to protect themselves from that kind of leaked IP. But generally speaking, these shared office spaces, everyone is pretty crowded. Everyone's pretty crammed in as scientists trying to make the most of it but often it leads to more tension over time and people are always fighting for more and more lab space more and more office space now the closest thing scientists have taken on board with respect to WeWork is just these giant teams of scientists all collaborating in one space. And that brings me to the biggest labs, the biggest science institutions where all of these people are crowded into one single environment. Usually it's because of geography and usually it's because of instrumentation, that the instrumentation is so hard and so rare to find that to work on it, you just have to be in that one place. This article is a little bit old now from Nature in 2019. The top 10 institutions in big science, physics, 
and astronomy. And this is talking about collaborations involving 10 or more principal institutions, especially in high energy physics. They're driving something called mega papers, where there's over 1,000 authors on that paper. And that would be a very crowded working environment where you're bumping elbow to elbow with scientists, a thousand scientists on a single publication. And the most highly ranked institutions and the most highly ranked papers in physics and astronomy within a period of 2015 to 2018 are chronicled in this list of institutions, the National Institute for Nuclear Physics in Italy that has an enormous number of scientists, 5,000 scientists across four labs. That's not that many labs for that many scientists. And basically they were trying to build on the work of the Nobel Prize winning Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, who built the world's first nuclear reactor. And they went on to design and build the first Italian accelerator and electron synchrotron. I'm not sure what the physical space for each scientist was, but they made WeWork model in science work for them. The next big lab is probably one of the most famous big labs in the world, CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Switzerland, CERN. They're home to the largest physics lab in the world and it houses more than 12,200 scientists from over 70 countries. Every single year is producing a lot of proton-proton collision data and is transforming how we perceive the very nature of matter and time itself. And they were able to squish 12,200 scientists, and I think that number's gone up since 2019, into the space and make it work. So the idea of a super lab is not new, but really we need to embrace that mentality, even in small smaller locations, smaller institutions that may not house 12,000 scientists in one go. But if there's any way we can share resources, we'd have to all go and pour the same chemicals into the same bottles. Maybe we can share those chemicals. We'd have to make our own agar plates. We don't have to apply for our own safety permits. It's all shared on a larger scale. That would allow science to be done more holistically. And the other effect of science being fragmented and split and spread across different facilities is that there is something called the reproducibility crisis. One scientist's and one scientific team's breakthrough is very difficult for another team to replicate. This article is from Nature where in 2016, 1,500 scientists are surveyed about their perceptions around reproducibility in their field. More than 70% of researchers have tried and failed to reproduce another scientist's experiments, and more than half have failed to reproduce their own experiments. This lack of reproducibility has many different factors that contribute to it. The survey respondents in this study said that it's the pressure to publish and selective reporting, and I'll add one more on that, sample size. A lot of the biological samples we work on study on mice. We're lucky to get say three to five mice with a very specific genetic combination analysis on three to five things is usually not powerful enough to extrapolate and allow people to reproduce things. If we're doing these experiments in separate environments and we're having to put our own reagents together, that of course introduces more variables, right? But if there was a super lab where 12,000 scientists were all gathered together and we're all using the same machine, we're all reproducing the experiment, we're all trying to reproduce the experiment in the same conditions, that could go some way to lay this reproducibility crisis. The more standardized our working conditions are going to be, the more likely we are to be able to make breakthrough on a common foundation of standardization. So if we play devil's advocate here, you could say, Jack, you're a fool. That kind of work is way too expensive. That's not the way of the startup. That's not the startup mindset. That's not the entrepreneurial disruptor mindset. You've got to be thinking small scale, doing things independently rather than this huge operation that will have 
have all of these governmental considerations and regulatory oversight. We want to go the indie route and go down the biohacking pathway. And through biohacking, these individual rogue scientists who are trialing things in their basement and figuring things out and reporting it to the masses on YouTube, on social media, that is way quicker than going through this traditional pipeline of 12,000 scientists crowded around a large hadron collider, which brings us to the topic, of course, of biohacking. What is biohacking and how does it work? A way of enhancing our body's ability to function at peak performance, however you want to define peak performance. And it is an attempt to extend our lifespan. The current most popular version of this is doing the, the cold tub, cold baths, the cold showers first thing in the morning. But depending on when you're watching this, the current flavor of the thing that's going to keep you healthy for the longest, it will change. It may be eating 10 eggs every morning. It may be never doing a wee. I don't really know what's going to be popular in the future, but there'll be some evidence-based thing that sounds a bit quacky and people will just run with it and, and make it a, a thing and there'll be some very muscular person on the internet saying they did this and it worked for them and it will take off. Biohacking is really based on the idea you can change the environment around you and inside of you so you have full control of your own biology. This is a quote from Dave Asprey, the author of Smarter Not Harder, the biohacker's guide to getting the body and mind you want. And this author was once overweight and struggling with brain fog and chronic fatigue while working in Silicon Valley and he basically wanted to go through and figure out all of the ways that conventional medicine isn't telling him to fix things and he wanted to improve his own health. And this is a spirit that should be commended trying to figure out how to improve your own health because conventional medicine gets you to a certain point. It's very hard to stay consistent and take the advice of traditional medicine on board. Then you do have to try things out to see if it works. And the best example of this is probiotics. Every probiotic you can buy from the supermarket, from the pharmacist, from the chemist claims that they're the best probiotic in the world. But everyone's gut microbiome is actually a little bit different. So a probiotic that works for your wife is not necessarily going to work for you. And a probiotic that's really, really great for kids isn't necessarily going to work for you because the bacteria in your gut is actually different. One person's health advice isn't going to be universally applicable. But I'm just a little wary when this advice becomes universal. Everyone should do these cold top rinses first thing in the morning. Everyone should quit sugar and everyone should just eat one meal a day. That's when I just like to hit the brakes as someone who's in this field and comes across a lot of this advice. The times of biohacking range from, say, lifestyle changes, dietary shifts, different kinds of breathing exercise and meditation, all makes a lot of sense. Molecular biohacking is where I start to get really nervous as a molecular biologist, as a microbiologist, taking drugs, taking synthetic or natural molecules to try and shift your biology, taking supplements. The vitamin industry is highly, highly unregulated. They are not the drug industry. They do not need FDA approval. So taking these supplements is actually something that has not much oversight at all. On top of that, there are biologics then start to get into FDA approval territory. So there is more oversight in this space. But as we talked about in the podcast previously, you could have FDA approval for one use, but there could be an off-label use of that same drug that may not have full FDA approval or may have FDA approval in some cases that people are using the drugs to do different things. Like Ozempic is not actually supposed to, in the first instance, be used for weight loss. It was supposed to be used to control control blood sugar, blood glucose levels for diabetics. It could also verge on the side of technology where you're wearing smartwatches, Apple watches, monitoring your sleep, your blood pressure, that kind of stuff. So it could be that side of things as well. Is it safe? That full range of things that you could try as a biohacker from vitamins to new drugs to technology or sit on a spectrum of benign to very, very unsafe as an individual 
try whatever you like. Hopefully, you can try things in collaboration with a medical professional. Hopefully, you're getting prescription things rather than things that you're just trying by yourself. If it's your own health, you take charge of it. You do what you want. It is where you start giving advice to other people and said, look, everyone should be doing this. Anyone with an intimate platform without any medical training, they can say, I'm an independent biohacker. I don't have any ties to Big Pharma. Listen to me. Everyone should do this. That is where I just like to pump the brakes. What will work for you may not work for someone else. So for me, I cuddle sugar, cuddle dairy maybe about nine months ago. Yes, I feel a lot better, but you don't hear me going around saying sugar and dairy are the devil. It just doesn't really suit my genetics, doesn't really suit my biology. I'm not shouting from the rooftops, big dairy must die. That doesn't make any sense. And this is affirmed by this article from The Conversation, which talks about the dangers of biohacking experiments, how it could harm your health. And the basic thesis of this article is that the high safety standards that medical research are held to, having different phases of clinical trials where hundreds or thousands of other people have gone through and taken that therapy and measured its safety. This is not at all the burden of proof of these independent biohackers, these people who are finding a WeWork office trying to do it in a very small team, injecting things into themselves, injecting some CRISPR DNA into their veins and seeing what happens. It sounds like a scene from the show Orphan Black. I don't know if you've seen that show. It, it very much had that spirit of, hey, we can just hack our DNA and figure it out. Unless you're doing this for thousands of people, none of this can be trusted. You might feel okay in the moment, whether that be the placebo effect or not. You might even feel better, better than ever. But this does not mean this thing you're trying is scalable. Nothing like this is universal unless it's gone through a trial where thousands, tens of thousands, hopefully millions of people have been through this process and have some kind of measurable effect and have some basic protection when it comes to the safety involved. Unless it's gone through that process, there's no guarantee the things that work for you, the biohack that works for you, will work for everyone. So again, I very much love the idea of the independent rogue scientists trying things out themselves. That's how we can buck the establishment and make the breakthrough when it comes to things that we recommend holistically when it comes to medicine. Pump the brakes here. We can slow things down. We do not need revolution that quickly at the cost of safety. One misstep is all it takes to lose the public's trust of scientists. We've seen that time and time again in recent months, recent years. We need to be very, very careful with respect to the pace of innovation in something like science, especially as it relates to medicine. Yes, the entrepreneurial disruptor spirit of we work is needed in science, but I think safety still comes first at the end of the day when it comes to medicine and people's lives. And speaking of medical breakthroughs, on the next episode, we're going to explore the emerging threat of superbugs and what can be done to combat their ever-rising threat in our hospitals. You can find the link here or in the show notes below. My name is Jack. Hope to connect with you again in the next episode.